Press. I'm your host, Riley Bounds, and this is the Solem Podcast, where we discuss and examine the intersection of the modern renaissances in evangelical literature, philosophy, and spiritual formation. Today, I'm excited to have Dr. Andrew Sorokowski on the podcast. Andrew Sorokowski was born in Connecticut to Ukrainian refugee parents and grew up in San Francisco. He studied romance and Slavic languages and literatures and holds a PhD in history. He also holds a JD from the University of California. He resides near Washington, DC. He has published translations of poems by Nataka Belos-Sirkibitz in Subprimal Poetry Arts and Peacock Journal. Two of his own poems have appeared in Image as well as his poem, Christmas, from Solemn Journal, Volume 1. More information will be given in the show notes, including a link to his LinkedIn profile and his contributor profile on the Solemn website, if you want to find out more. So, Andrew, welcome, and thanks for joining me today. Yeah, thank you. All right, well, just uh, tell us a bit about yourself, namely, how did you come to Christ? Well, I think that's, um, for some people, I guess, it's a one-time event, uh, becoming a Christian. I, uh, I was brought up in a church, um, and uh, like many people in childhood, and like many people um, as a teenager, I, I began to ask the big questions. Um, is there someone up there you know, who created all this and who is in charge of all this? Uh, you know, does God exist? Um, and can we have some kind of relationship? with him. Now, uh, again, there wasn't a kind of one-time clarification, but there was a gradual process. And in a way, it's a lifelong process. Uh, Obviously, at some point in your life, you you make that commitment. But, um, and that to me actually happened probably fairly late in life, maybe in my 30s, but certainly already in, in high school, I had a few friends who were, I think, spiritually more advanced than me. Um, and they were reading C.S. Lewis and Tolkien and so on. I mean, this, this often took a kind of literary uh, form of interest uh, or a point of departure. Um, and then a lot of it was uh, a series of uh, things that I read exp- and also experiences, uh, experiences where one does feel the, the presence of the divine. Um, I remember once at Easter in my freshman year of college. And then I also in college read the uh, Confessions of St. Augustine, which I think had an enormous uh, effect on me. Mm -hmm. Uh, That was a kind of turning point. Um, But as you know, in in, in college, you encounter all sorts of ideas and all sorts of um, arguments and points of view. And you have these moments of doubt and wavering and, and these various deviations and, you know, throughout your 20s, perhaps, and, and, and 30s. Um, but it was always, for me, uh, a process, you know, in, in, in the direction of coming closer, you know, closer to God. And I think um, I read um, some authors who had an, also an effect on me, uh, certainly Tolstoy, and then later mm-hmm. Dostoevsky. Um, and um, I'd say that, um, yeah, it's been it's been an ongoing process. Hey, one, one, one kind of uh, one is always growing in, in faith. Mm-hmm. Now, you've also been an activist for religious freedom and communist regimes. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, so why don't you just tell us a bit about that generally? Hmm. Well, I was very fortunate um, <clears throat> in the 1980s to have an opportunity to work at Keston College uh, in England. Uh, it, it has since moved, it's moved to Oxford and now actually uh, the archives of Keston College of our in Baylor University in Waco, Texas. But um, that organization was very active. It was founded by an Anglican uh, clergyman, uh, the late Reverend Michael Bordeaux, who died just recently. A remarkable man, by the way, just, just remarkable individual. Um, and his organization, he actually received the Templeton Prize for Progress in Religion at, at one point. But Keston College was a, a real kind of ecumenical enterprise, um, which was on the one hand a research institute, which studied um, religion in communist lands. That was in fact the name of his journal. Mm. And so it was an academic enterprise, but it was also an activist enterprise. It did both. And uh, it advocated religious liberty for people living in regimes, political regimes, which had uh, an anti-religious policy. And that meant basically communist regimes. Um, their emphasis was the Soviet Union because that's where their expertise was. They had uh, specialists on Russia, you know, and I came in as a specialist on Ukraine in 1984. Um, they also dealt with, you know, various East European countries, Poland, Hungary, um, also the, uh, the Baltic states. And one thing about that was that it was a wonderful opportunity to work with people of different Christian denominations. Um, tended to be Protestants, Evangelicals, Methodists. Um, there were Catholics there. There was a, at least one Orthodox woman, Russian Orthodox. And all these people, different nationalities, different, you know, different uh, denominations uh, cooperated in this, this enterprise. So it was a wonderful experience. Um, and of course, the situations we dealt with were all different and, and, and complicated because in, in the different communist countries, uh, it wasn't simply a matter of there being <clears throat> officially atheist and, and persecuting Christians, but there were different ways in which they manipulated churches, uh, mm. gave concessions, took away concessions. Uh, there were a lot of temptations for, for Christians, in, in particularly in the Soviet Union. And uh, when I studied Ukraine, for example, the most uh, one of the big issues then was uh, for the evangelical Christians, Baptists, should they register and follow the Soviet laws or should they not register with the government and basically go beyond the law? And the problem was that the law forbade a lot of things like um, teaching religion. Now, you know, you can imagine that uh, for an evangelical Christian not being allowed to share your faith with anyone, even with your own children, but certainly with no one beyond your family, uh, was a denial of, 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 of who you were, what you were, of your beliefs. So many of the, there was a famous group, of course, uh, under Georgi Vince of the uh, Evangelical Christian Baptists who um, were, would not register with the government. And there were other churches. I dealt with the Ukrainian Catholic Church, which was illegal, had gone underground. Uh, it was a, called the Catacomb Church. Um, the Orth Ukrainian Orthodox Church didn't even exist. It had been completely eradicated by Stalin, and yet it cropped up then in, in, in the late 80s. So there were a lot of interesting um, things to follow. Uh, and of course, uh, we did our best to publicize this. Mm -hmm. Watch tell us a bit about the uh, catacomb church that you mentioned. Well, uh, yes, the uh, in, in uh, Eastern Europe, there are several 
formerly Orthodox churches, which uh, in the 16th or 17th century and, and later uh, came back into communion with the, with the Roman Catholic Church. And they are like many religious groups um, in, in Europe, uh, in Eastern Europe in the 19th century became um, connected with national revivals, or, you know, revivals of national culture. And that uh, made them very suspect in, in the eyes of the Soviet authorities in, in 19, at the, during World War II, uh, Western Ukraine came under Soviet rule and the Soviets tried to co-opt the church, just that they had tried to co-opt the they had co-opted the Russian Orthodox Church, first nearly destroying it, and then during World War II, reviving it under condition that it would basically act as an arm of the state. Now the Ukrainian Catholic Church refused to do that. Um, and it was a suspect, partly because it had foreign connections, partly because it was uh tied up with the National Revival, which was uh, ideologically a, a competitor to Soviet rule, to communist rule. Um, and it was simply a church which was not going to play along. So it was uh, formally, it was liquidated, it was driven underground, heavily persecuted, hundreds of priests and faithful were, were arrested, sent to exile in religion, you know, in Siberia. And um, none of the bishops uh, would cooperate with the um, Soviet regime and uh, most of them died in exile or, or, or in prison. So that was an officially non-existent church, but we knew that there were a few million people who were secretly practicing their faith. And um, that, that was the issue that I was dealing with. And I was able to go over there in 1990 when it was still the Soviet Union and at a time when Gorbachev had, had met with, with the Pope and had agreed to allow this church to register its parishes uh, in compliance with Soviet law. And I saw this you know, revival of faith, uh, not only among the Ukrainian Catholics, but also among the Ukrainian Orthodox, and of course, other denominations, which, which then were, were really freely, uh, uh, beginning to freely uh, Act, but this was, uh, you know, a remarkable situation because it was still the Soviet Union. Nobody knew what was going to happen, um, and there was this great um, kind of rebirth of, of religion. It's very easy to say, you know, Stalin and the Soviet Union—they're just motivated by evil. But what, um, what were the concrete? motivations of the Soviet Union? What was the motivation for the suppression of religion and Christianity, especially? Well, I think basically, um, I mean, that's a good question because there's more than one motive, but I think basically you just have to read, you know, Karl Marx and then and, and the Marxist view of religion. I mean, Marxism regards religion as a, a sort of, um, as a sort of fakery, as something dreamed up by the ruling class to keep the proletariat down, to keep the poor people down. Um, the idea is that because religion promises heaven, it uh, distracts people from striving for improving their earthly lot. And this is, of course, untrue. And Marx is, I mean, it's kind of surprising. Marx was a very intelligent person, but he, he had this very primitive view of what religion did. Uh, and he regarded it simply as a tool of class oppression. And... So I think, you know, that's, that's the first thing. I mean, anyone who's a Marxist, uh, whether socialist or communist, uh, 
any of those regimes is going to see religion as socially destructive as, as uh, an impediment to their program of motivating the proletariat to revolt again and overthrow the system and uh, as a, a kind of obstacle to their program of um, creating what they regarded as a, a perfect society. Now, I think that it, it also goes deeper than this because some people have pointed out that Marxism, especially in the Leninist variety, became a kind of substitute religion, something that atheists could believe in. And so it sees religion as a competitor. And that's another reason why I think it, um, it, it, it is so uh, virulently anti-religious because it tries to be a kind of belief system of its own, which has absolute, uh, which is absolutist, which explains everything. So you can't have a rival. Uh, and then the other thing is, of course, that um, Marxists regard churches as an impediment because first they see churches as uh, pillars of the bourgeois or, or you know, capitalist structure. Uh, again, untrue, that's an oversimplification. But they uh, also see churches simply as an in, one more institution that they can't control. Uh, again, in, in, in Russia, they, su they succeeded in, in getting the Russian Orthodox Church to allow itself to be controlled by an atheist regime. But I mean, it was either that or perish. They almost destroyed it. So you, you know, it's not surprising. But by and large, um, for these reasons, Marxist regimes, communist regimes, see both religion and religious organizations as an obstacle to be removed and as something which just cuts against their their program and their worldview. Mm. So do you have any insights as to why um, communist states trust the supremacy of the states so deeply? Uh, I think that that is the only way that they can put through their program. I mean, they they claim that they are for you know socialism and equality of, of you know social economic equality of all people uh, and yet uh, they you can't make that happen unless you pit one class against another and then establish a strong government to enforce that so the irony is that in in enforcing equality you have to have you have to destroy equality you have to have those kind of super class of bureaucrats and, and um, uh, rulers who force the rest of society to be equal. So what you get is very much what, what you in fact did get. And, and I saw this in the Soviet Union and to some extent in, in a country like Poland, mm -hmm. where you have the mass of the population living in something close to poverty. And then you have this class of, but they're all, they're all equal, all these, all these poor people. And then you have this wealthy class of bureaucrats and, and political uh, bosses who make sure that everyone else is living in conditions of, of equal poverty. Uh, so it's, it's a self-defeating self proposition, really. Um, mm. But that's you know, one of the many contradictions of, of communism, so to speak. Right. Uh, um, so uh, the Soviet Union surely has had looked on uh, other prior uh, forms of communist government and uh, taken inspiration probably, but it's, um, what do you think made them uh, think that they could do it correctly? Well, that's a, you know, a very good question because Marx himself didn't think that the revolution should occur in, in Russia because Russia was so backwards. 
Uh, he thought it should occur in Germany, where you had the most advanced, uh, it was the most advanced country in the 19th century in Europe and, and had the most advanced and, and uh, conscious, politically conscious proletariat. And yet in Germany, what happened was the trade, uh, social democracy and the trade unions uh, took the fore and Marxism sort of fell out of fashion. And, you know, other countries like, like France and England were able to enact a lot of social reform without turning to socialism. Um, so as it happened, the, the Russian revolutionaries who, who um, adapted Marx, uh, Marxism um, decided they would revise it a little bit and say, you know, despite what Marx or, Eng, you know, or Engels thought, uh, actually Russia is going to, it's going to jump ahead and it's going to uh, jump across those necessary stages of developing a middle class and a bourgeoisie and a bureaucracy, you know, and a, uh, and a middle class democracy, it's going to jump ahead and it's going to make the revolution happen. I mean, I think this is, you know, it's kind of a mystery, but it's, I think it's to some extent tied up with Russian uh, messianism, you know, with the idea that, that Russia will save the world. Uh, to some extent, it was uh, tied up with Russian autocracy because autocracy made it possible for the government to make all sorts of experiments uh, upon the people. So that you know, even though they overthrew the Tsarist government, you could still have the same bureaucrats and the same military people uh, imposing more, uh, you know, another crazy ideology upon uh, upon the mass of the, the the peasantry who you know really had no choice and had no way of resisting. Uh, so you know, perhaps that's why um, they thought they could do it there, but. Uh, you know, it was, a, I mean, grossly misconceived. And if you look at the results, it's really frightening. Yes. Yeah. Um, so you lived in, uh, in the USSR at one point, correct? Well, I, I spent, uh, I guess, several, several weeks there, you know, maybe a couple of months in total. And I, I spent three months in Poland also, uh, mm -hmm. when it was still communist Poland. Right. So why don't you just um, tell us just a bit about what it was like? Um, what did yeah. you see? What did you experience there? Well, um, you know, maybe the, the most striking thing that I that I recall from from those visits um, was to see how again how the catacomb church lived because at that time, even though there had already been a kind of um, a detente with 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 the West, you know, and, and reforms and and human rights reforms. Political prisoners were being released, um, although you know, as as, there, as I mean, just a few years before, there had been people dying in the prison camps. But you had um, and you had the church, you know, the churches emerging. But I saw where, for example, the uh, Greek Catholic uh, Archbishop of the city Review in Western Ukraine. I saw how he lived. And he had to have, you know, some of his faithful um, taking turns watching his apartment to make, you know, to make to warn him in case anyone came to arrest him, or to keep out um, provocateurs, you know, people who who might, you know, create a situation where they, which would create a pretext for arresting him. He lived in a, a one room, uh, didn't have his own kitchen or bathroom like many people in the Soviet Union. Uh, all he had was a room for himself. Um, there were, in many cases, people with families also lived in one room, and they shared both the bathroom and the kitchen with their neighbors, whoever those neighbors might be. And that's how he lived. And it was incredible. I mean, there were several of us just crammed into this little room. So that, that was really a striking 
view of how uh, the underground church lived and, and how um, uh, a person who, in the eyes of the government, was just another ordinary citizen uh, lived. Um, but I saw also, you know, the, the um, some of the uh, effects of the policies of the government, of course, again, uh, the poverty, the, the, the crowded conditions in which people lived. Um, you also saw uh, the kind of moral deterioration that had occurred in, in the late Soviet period. Um, a lot of alcoholism, you know, kind of uh, people living really without any kind of hope or, or optimism, you know, great, very deep cynicism, um, corruption, theft, um, just little details like the condition of the buildings, uh, everything was falling apart. People were not, didn't care about the property because it wasn't theirs. The buildings were falling apart. Things were shoddily made. People did not take pride in their work because it was not theirs. And in fact, you know, people would often say, uh, you know, they would steal from, you know, public property because there was no private property. Uh, practically none. And they'd say, well, you know, this belongs to everyone. This is, uh, it's nationalized. It belongs to the people. So why can't I help myself to it, right? I mean, it's logical in a sense. If there's no private property, how can you feel guilty about theft? Um, so it was, you know, you saw that demoralization. You saw uh, former churches turned into movie theaters, um, clubhouses, that kind of thing. Um, the ruins of, of monasteries, um, you know, kind of depressing and, and kind of gray. And I was actually in, in the most westernized part of the Soviet Union, Western Ukraine, uh, when I went to Kiev, you know, which was more, uh, more maybe in the Soviet mainstream. Um, I saw even more of that, of that, you know, kind of um, depressing atmosphere, you know, very, very, very gray as it often is depicted in, in films. And, um, but also that kind of um, demoralization. And yet you, you met people who were, who somehow had gotten to it all and who were um, in, in, I mean, of course I met people who were, who were anti-Soviet. So of course I met people who had resisted all those processes and somehow managed to keep their sanity and, and their good sense and who had grown up in that system and from their very first day, conscious day of life had seen that it was wrong and opposed it. And of course, a lot of those people got into some very serious political trouble. And, and if they, they were either imprisoned, um, sent to, to, to prison camps, or, or they were just persecuted, you know, had to report to the uh, their local friendly KGB agent and just tell them what they were up to. Um, you know, living in, it's a lot of stress when, when you're in that position of being constantly suspect and you can't get a job anymore and so on. So I met people like that. And in meeting people, you've got a good insight into what that system had done to people. Right. So why don't you say a bit more about the persecution of Christians there? Yeah. The uh, and again, when we think of persecution, I think we when we think of you know sort of overt things like a person being arrested and and, and sent to prison, and certainly that was you know the case with with a lot of religious uh, leaders in particular. Um, and again, I'd met people who had been you know been in prison. Um, for that reason, uh, but there were more subtle forms of persecution. Again, there were uh, simply the fact that if you, uh, well, for example, if you talked about religion with your children, um, in a place like Kiev, uh, you know, my wife spent her childhood there, and she said, I mean, you, her parents were afraid to even talk about religion with her. 
or even talk about something like Christmas because um, the neighbors might hear and the neighbors might report it to someone. And very often people, you know, tattling on their friends and neighbors. And there was an incredible amount of that informing, you know, informant activities because you, you would be rewarded for that. And you would yourself then stay out of trouble if you reformed, you know, informed on someone else. And if you informed on people, well, if they were uh, children, their chances of getting into the university could be compromised, could be, you know, could end completely. If you, um, if you, if somebody who was an adult um, was informed on for holding the wrong ideas, that person would be just, would, could lose, you know, his or her job. And if you lost your job, you lost your, your food. I mean, you lost a lot of things. You were, you were really in, in, in bad shape. Uh, you couldn't just go and get another job. You would be blacklisted. Um, those people, again, would, would be discriminated against um, their whole lives. You know, and they used to say, you know, how come, oh, you know, they, they used to say, well, look, look at the churches in the Soviet Union. They're, they're full and they're full of old people because, you know, uh, only the old people are religious and they're going to die soon. So that's why they care about religion. Well, <laughs> that's not quite true. Uh, and, and why is it that it's only the old women? Well, it was old women because men didn't live very long uh, in that system. Uh, the, the healthcare was terrible, the, the conditions of life, the pollution, the, the alcoholism, all these things uh, made for a very short lifespan for men, a short one for women, but women lived a bit longer. Uh, why were the churches full of old people? Because old people had nothing more to lose. They had their pensions. You know, the government would not cut off people's pensions. I mean, you know, that, that would have been really perceived as, as too cruel. So once you were on, once you were retired, you really had nothing to be afraid of. Your career was over, you were done with. So you could, you know, you could then practice religion freely. For a young person to practice religion, uh, you would get no education. Your children might not get an education. Um, you, uh, you would, again, you had no, career, your career was over. So that was the, you know, the more subtle kind of persecution, which put a real chilling effect on any kind of religious activity or, or even talking about it. Um, in the villages, you could get away with more because the village, you know, the, the police couldn't watch everyone and people really didn't care that much. I mean, the government cared less about what happened in the countryside because they saw the countryside as backwards, the village as something which was going to die out anyway uh, and religion along with it. Um, but in the cities, uh, yeah, it was it was a very risky business. Um, so, is there a way that we can help these persecuted Christians in communist countries? Yeah, well, of course. Now we're talking about you know places like China, Cuba, North Korea. Um, not not that you know the Soviet Union is gone, but I think the same issues uh, come up. Um, in, in those days, when I was active in these matters, there was a book, I think it was by Trevor Beeson called uh, Discretion and Valor. And it was based on that British saying that valor is the uh, better part, or the discretion is the better part of valor. And you know, what that means is that, yes, it's good to be brave and, and daring, but it's more important to be careful. And what that meant in, in the context of religious freedom was that you sometimes had to be diplomatic. You had to work through diplomatic um, channels because you couldn't get anything done otherwise. At the same time, you had to tell the truth. So you had to do both. Um, and of course, there were people who were good at uh, making a lot, you know, calling attention to the problem of religious persecution. And there were other people who preferred to work behind the scenes and 
you know, maybe they tended not to rock the boat, but they wanted to enter into dialogue with the authorities. And actually, uh, you need to do both. Uh, and I think, so I think, you know, that may depend in part on your temperament. But we, I think, you know, need to, to both work on the government level, for example, um, and uh, talk with these governments, negotiate with them, you know, uh, exert pressure. And at the same time, we need to have people who are, you know, shouting and screaming and saying, look, look at these horrible things which are happening. And the two, these two approaches work together. Now, the US, you know, has a, has a commission on international religious freedom. Um, uh, so that, that certainly uh, has a political role to play, a diplomatic role. There are private organizations, various churches have, um, have their private organizations which study um, the church in, in, in the different countries where, where the churches are persecuted. So I think people can work through those organizations. Um, and I think, again, one, one needs to tell the truth about the persecution, which is, you know, enormous these days, and it comes from different quarters. It's not only in those totalitarian, totalitarian countries, but it's in, in, you know, relatively democratic countries also, where there's simply a, a um, majority population, which is, which is intolerant of Christians. Uh, you know where those places are. And, and there are countries which, where the governments are, you know, for example, confessional governments which persecute Christianity. So there again, you've got to work on both fronts, tell the truth, but also um, pull those levers. Now, um, are there any uh, websites to these different commissions, uh, these inter different international commissions to- uh, Yeah, the US up? Commission on International Religious Freedom does, does have a website. Uh, I think you just, you just key in that name, US Commission on International Religious Freedom. And, uh, mm. Okay. So on the more philosophical end of this, uh, do you think that communism is inherently evil or do you think that evil people have appropriated it for evil ends? Well, I'd say, you know, first off, I'd say both. I mean, both are true. Um, I think that, you know, there is a tendency for people sometimes to say, well, you know, communism was a, was a noble idea. It was very idealistic and it's just, you know, it, it was abused, you know, Lenin was okay, Stalin kind of uh, perverted it and, and, and uh, turned it into something evil. I, I mean, I think that's wrong. I think, you know, Lenin was wrong from the, from the very beginning. The, one of the first things he did was to found the Cheka, the, uh, the uh, secret police. Um, then there are people who say that, you know, communism was, was, was okay. It's just that it was used uh, by power hungry people uh, and again, yes, it was used by power-hungry people, but I think that's almost beside the point. Um, I think that it is an inherently, you know, I'm a, it's an inherently, you know, mistaken, mistaken, um, and, and indeed evil ideology, because I think it, uh, well, first of all, it's atheist, you know, uh, and I think that's, for Christians, I think that's the first objection you have to make. This is a uh, an ideology which which denies the existence of God. So that, that should kind of you know make you wonder. Um, it also has a false understanding of human nature. And in two ways, I mean, first of all, well, or maybe second of all, it, it treats people as simply economic creatures um, uh, that are only interested in, in, in material goods. Mm -hmm. uh, so, and it doesn't uh, account for the fact that people do, however, want to better their, their, their state, that people want to work hard and enjoy the fruits of their labor. Um, and just, 
it, it doesn't account for the fact that people need some kind of incentive to work. They are, they are only going to work if they can get something for their work, if they get some kind of reward. It doesn't mean they all have to get rich, but you know, people do want to better their lot. That's simply natural. So it misunderstands human nature in that sense. It also, you know, of course, misunderstands human nature in that it treats human beings as purely economic creatures. And they're not, you know, uh, it denies the spiritual, it denies the soul, it denies the, the aesthetic and cultural. I mean, think about, you know, communist culture. What is it? You know, I've asked myself, where is it? They were incapable of creating a culture. In the 20s, they had, they did have an interesting culture, but they, they were still not fully, you know, they were still, still on their way to full communism then. And there was this great explosion of experimental art and music and so on. It was wonderful. But once they really became a communist country under Stalin, it was completely sterile. And it was sterile because it treats human beings as cogs. Uh, in a machine. Uh, so, I, you know, I think it's, it's evil, but, you know, it's evil because it is so utterly untrue, <laughs> you know. Um, and of course, you see the consequences, though, when you misunderstand what human beings are, you treat them, you know, if you, if you think they're, if you treat them, if you believe that they are like, like cattle, then you treat them, I mean, no offense to cattle, by the way, <laughs> they're God's creatures, but, you know, if you treat people like cattle, you, you turn them into cattle, you destroy their their minds, their souls. Um, and this is why you have so much social malaise in, in, in Russia now. These are still the after effects of, of communism, yeah, the alcoholism, you know, people living in despair and darkness, believing in nothing. I mean, this is, this mm -hmm. is a very, very dark and, and gloomy kind of uh, result. Not to mention, of course, the uh, killing of millions of people, which again, communism makes you, justifies that because having removed God having removed religion, you know, Dostoevsky saw this coming, by the way, he, in the novel The Possessed. I mean, it's a great novel. You, should, you know, people should read that. He saw, you know, in the 1870s, he saw what was coming. And he's, you know, the famous statement, um, you know, if, if God does not exist, everything is permitted. Now, the thing with ideologies like communism and, and, and Nazism, by the way, same thing, is by removing... Um, God as a source of justice and of removing the idea of morality. And, and, and Nietzsche, by the way, who's now very popular again among young people for some reason, you know, Nietzsche was the one who said, oh, you know, Christian morality is a sham and so on. And, you know, it's, it's you know, the, we have to go beyond ethics and morality. You know, that's something for weak people. So this cult of strength and, and, and the idea that you can do whatever you want and you'll get away with it because there is no God who will judge you. There is no right or wrong. There is no ethics or morality. When you have an ideology like that, people permit themselves the most incredible things. They will destroy millions of their fellow human beings, and they think it's justified because it's you know for the revolution, or someday it'll, you know, the the end will justify the means. Mm -hmm. uh, another anti-Christian concept, which which some people seem to subscribe to. Um, so communism, like fascism, is evil in the sense that, yes, it, it breaks down all sense of ethics, morality, and the uh, responsibility of people to God, the responsibility to each other. And it makes possible the most incredible atrocities, you know, tens of millions of people destroyed, just like that. And, you know, people, even Western intellectuals, and especially Western intellectuals in the 30s would say things like, you know, the Soviet Union is a noble experiment. And yes, millions of people have to die, but, you know, it's all for the greater good. 
and uh, it'll all be justified in the end. It's chilling that they can say such a thing. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. But, it, it, you know, it completely excuse the uh, the inherent worth of human beings. Uh, yeah. For a consequentialist yeah. ethic, which I, th yeah. I think there are deep, deep problems with. Um, yeah. Now, would you say that America is moving in the direction of socialism or communism? It's an interesting question. I mean, not, not communism, I don't think. We're just, you know, for one thing, we're just too ornery to uh, submit to that kind of system. At least I hope that's true. Um, you know, too, too democratic. And, you know, we are a deeply democratic people. I mean, those, that, that is a political tradition of freedom, which, which I think protects us from, from some of that foolishness. But I think there are dangers uh, because uh, with what appears to be a decline in religion, you do have the rise of kind of a materialist ethic. And materialism is, of course, is the necessary groundwork for, um, you know, for, for social, socialism and communism. And again, this is the, the problem with socialism uh, in particular is that most, you know, there is such a thing as Christian socialism that historically, you know, it didn't really have much of a, much success. Yeah. But the problem with socialism is, is it is inherently atheist, it's materialist. And again, that's a misunderstanding of humanity and life. And I think that's, um, that is, uh, it's, it's great flaw. Now, that doesn't mean that, um, you know, capitalism is, is, is always good and, and, and has no, no flaws. In fact, I think one of the things that drives some people towards socialism is their sense of justice. You know, especially young people, young people are always idealistic and always trying to improve things and, and uh, they believe they can change the world for the better. You know, every generation does this, mine did too, of course. Uh, but I, th and I think that's the attraction of socialism. It seems to promise justice and equality, and it seems to promise that it will correct the um, injustices that we have, you know, in in you know under capitalism. Um, but I think the uh, you know the problem is again that it's it's uh, it is you know a, a godless ideology. Now you know there there can be such a thing as godless capitalism too. I mean there there, there are those who, you know, who believe that, who are materialists and who believe that the free market is the most, you know, the highest principle because that's all that matters is that people can buy stuff. And, and you know, right. yeah, that of course is, is, is absolutely anti-Christian too. But I think the problem with socialism, the insidious thing is that it does appear to, to uh, promise equality. Although, as I said earlier, you can't enforce equality without destroying equality. So it's self-contradictory. Uh, the other thing is that, you know, there is a, a, a human right to, to property. I don't mean vast amounts of capital or land, but, but to the kind of property that a person needs to, to survive, to sustain a family. Um, that is a basic human right. There's a human right to the fruits of one's labor. So uh, why should a person who works more be forced to share equally with someone who doesn't want to work? I mean, that's, that's unjust. But that's what happened with you know, certainly in the communist system with the collective farms and collective enterprises, um, you know, people who were just, some people worked, some didn't. And it was very demoralizing for the people who wanted to, to, to do honest, creative work. So if, if there is, I mean, the, uh, if, there, if there are people certainly in the U.S. who are tending towards socialism, uh, not merely social justice, you know, I think social justice is perfectly fine. But if they really think that socialism is the answer, they should just study it a little more and study history. And, and I think right. a reasonable person would understand why that is just not going to work. You know, read Marx, read Engels, read Lenin, 
study what happened in these various countries. And uh, any, any you know, reasonable person will conclude that this is not the answer. You know, I think that there, there is a kind of um, Christian um, democracy which, which, which could work and which could give people um, you know, more social justice, but, but freedom at the same time, uh, and which emphasizes maybe the right of the family or the individual to have enterprises, which encourages cooperative enterprises, and which would thus, you know, avoid some of the injustices in globalist capitalism, but which also would avoid the, uh, you know, really destructive um, consequences of, of socialism. Mm -hmm. Well, that was great. Thank you. Um, so let, let's move a little bit now into your your more personal endeavors. Um, okay. So you've worn you've worn a lot of hats. Um, You've been a poet, you've been a forensic historian, a lawyer, and a translator. And uh, that makes me feel very insecure. Um, no but, need. Uh, <laughs> You're um, a lot younger. <laughs> yeah, still working on it. Um, how have you been able to get into and work in so many fields? Well, I think that that uh, is, is to some extent just the uh, consequence of, of, you know, maybe maybe uh, not doing too well in some of them, I don't know. Uh, yeah, the, the way things turn out, I mean, this is, is often surprising. Um, but, uh, you know, don't be too impressed because, I mean, I think that, that I, I've had my failures too. And, you know, we in, I guess we in America have, have a kind of ethos of, of success and, and we all want to be above average and we all want to be great and famous and rich and so on. Uh, and, and so um, we find it hard to accept the fact that we often fail. And that you yeah. know we are we are a flawed species, and and we uh, we don't always know where we're going. Uh, some people seem to know what they're doing very well, and they have meteoric careers. But uh, most of us, you know, try one thing, we try another. Uh, I take some solace in looking at, at the careers of some writers. People, you know, it's been said that Mark Twain, for example, you know, failed at a whole series of things before he became a writer. Um, so you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't make too much of that. Uh, I've had an interesting time. I, you know, I've done different things, but um, they didn't always lead to something. I mean, um, I wanted to be a tenured professor. Uh, I, I was very fortunate to teach for a while, but I permanent full time job. So yeah, that's as much a, um, a result of failure as a success. But you know, you uh, you kind of have to. Um, have some faith that, that you're being led in some, some good direction. I think, you know, I, I started out wanting to be a writer when I was a child and I sort of ended up being a writer. And so it all sort of turned out well in the end. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so what languages do you speak and translate? Well, um, yeah, it depends on, on how one would define knowing a language. I guess I know two languages well, English and Ukrainian. Ukrainian I actually spoke at home before I learned English, uh, but I learned English very quickly and I made a point of learning it quickly because I was teased at school for not being able to pronounce certain words. Uh, so I'd say two that I really know well, and I have translated uh, you know, Ukrainian to English, uh, not English to Ukrainian. I would not try that. Um, but then there are you know, maybe six or seven that I know badly. You know, <laughs> I know a lot of languages badly. Uh, and, you know, I can, I mean, that is to say, I can read them with a dictionary. I can, I can actually, you know, translate maybe from some of them with a dictionary and with some help. But, um, you know, I speak, speaks a few of them badly and, and uh, I don't write well in any of them. Uh, basically two groups, you know, romance languages. I mean, 
Latin I had in school, and then French, Spanish, Italian, I can get by in. And then, you know, the Slavic languages are very close to each other. So I, I studied Russian and, and Polish, and um, yeah, I can sort of get by. I can't say I know them well, but uh, I can do a pretty uh, impressive job of speaking them badly. How did you find your way into poetry? I remember that, oh, about the fifth or sixth grade, for some reason I was reading the Iliad in one of those old Victorian translations. I guess it must have been assigned or suggested to me. And I got the idea that, you know, I would write an epic poem. And I just remember, you know, sitting in study hall and uh, on, on some scratch paper, I started writing this verse after verse, this epic poem. And I don't remember how far I got, but I mean, that was my first kind of impulse. And I don't really know why I did it. I just, I just wanted to do it. Um, mm. I didn't really think about it. Um, and then later on, you know, I had some good English teachers. Um, I remember in eighth grade, uh, star, we read some of T.S. Eliot, you know, the, the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock, a poem that has been in my head ever since, uh, become sort of emblematic for me. And we, you know, at that time, people memorized poems. I don't know if they do it now, but we were we were required to memorize, you know, a poem or two. And that is a very good way of, of getting to appreciate poetry because you're you're forced to think about it uh, once you've memorized it. It's in your head, and you're sort of turning it around, and you're beginning to see more deeply into it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, so that sort of got me interested in it. And then, like many people, you know, as a teenager, young person, I wrote some some poems. And then, um, but then I sort of took a break for about 50 years, you know, <laughs> and then, um, but, um, I, you know, I think I really then got back into it because um, I met, uh, well, I met Natalka Bielotserkiewicz, whose who's husband actually was on some sort of Fulbright um, scholarship here in the U.S. and got talking about translations of poetry. And I got the idea into my head of translating some of her poetry, although it was quite challenging. And I found that I really enjoyed that process. It was very difficult, but it was also a lot of fun, extremely gratifying. Mm-hmm. Um, and then from translating, I sort of got back into writing it because you know it was a very easy sort of transition, a natural transition. So, but that was um, already in a rather advanced age. And, mm-hmm. But I was taking up a lot of the themes I had written about when I was, um, right. when I was younger. Yeah, yeah. But in the meantime, of course, I'd always been interested in, in, you know, always read it with pleasure. It was just that the actual writing uh, mm-hmm. I'd put on pause. Um, yeah, so m- most of the poet poems that you've written uh, are sonnets, including the ones that you'll yeah. uh, that you'll read for us at the end of this. Um, so, so why why do you tend to gravitate toward the formal formal verse? I think that's partly a matter of, of temperament, um, just one's own mentality. I, I tend to seek order. I have, uh, you know, maybe because there's something in my background of, of displacement and, you know, um, what what my family went through in, uh, in the war and afterwards. Uh, it, it breeds a certain insecurity and one seeks, you know, order and, and logic. And the sonnet is a very orderly form uh, very intellectual form, you know, and that again maybe is just my own inclination to, to kind of intellectualize things, but it it has a kind of dialectical uh, form, you know, A, B, and therefore C, and there, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so it's a matter of temperament, but it um, 
and and I you know I tend to like form um, because it's uh, simply easier to, to kind of formulate my thoughts when I have a structure. So you know some people aren't like that at all. They they find form constricting. I find form you know in a way liberating because once you've got the form you know in, to, to kind of give you a structure you can be more creative in what you put into that structure and you don't have to worry about whether it's going to be formless or not. You know, again, that's a kind of anxiety maybe of the, of the uh, displaced person. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, on the other hand, I also like um, a haiku is, for example, kind of an interesting form for me also. Mm -hmm. And I think the thing about that is that uh, it it is in a way comes close to a... a um, perfect, you know, a perfect form because you have those two lines and then you have this kind of surprising turn at the third line. But the interesting thing about actually back to, back to the, um, the, the sonnet is that it is a kind of perfect form. It's been shown mathematically that the proportions of a sonnet are like the golden mean. And if you look at the, the golden mean uh, as, as a mathematical concept, uh, it, it coincides with the form of the sonnet if you assume that the ninth line is where there's a kind of the, the volta, the, the turn. So it's it's a kind of eternal form. I mean, it's it's a remarkably um, it's something you see in nature, in architecture, in uh, mathematics, all over the place. Uh, the sonnet is a, you know really a remarkable remarkable form, and that's that's one of the reasons I like it. I have tried to write you know, free verse or, or looser forms. And sometimes you do that, but you know, I don't start out with the form. I start out with the idea and then the idea finds its own shape. It tells me what form it wants to take. And usually it wants to be a sonnet. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, what do you think are the advantages and disadvantages of free verse and formal verse over one another? So yeah, the, uh, well, I think the, again, the, um, the creativity, I guess, takes place in a, in a different way and in a different form. I mean, once you've got the form as, as a structure, you can be creative with what you put into that form. Uh, you don't have to worry, you know, uh, you basically are constricted already. So you have to make the most of, of that, of that structure. Um, but you know you've you've got to have rhymes or you've got to have rhythms and so on, um, and that in a sense limits your choices. With with you know free verse or something like that, there are no limits, so you you're kind of uh, in a way it's more difficult in that sense. It's easier with regard to form, and yet it's more difficult because you those words have to be exactly the right words, and you have no excuse to choose you know a, a rhyming word as opposed to a non-rhyming word. You really really have to have the right word there. And uh, that, I think that just puts the pressure on, on, uh, on content and on choice of words. Um, and, you know, it has to, I mean, you, you, you know, then it, perhaps you want it to approximate speech, perhaps you want it to approximate music or, or sound, you know, you, the creativity shifts to maybe different, different uh, places, different um, aspects of, of the poem. The poem, uh, sonnet is you know a little bit like solving a problem. Uh, it's kind of a, something slightly mechanical about it. Uh, when you have free verse, when you don't have um, those constrictions, there's a greater burden to be 
to choose absolutely the best word at every point. You have no excuse to, to choose a rhyming word over a non-rhyming word. You've got to choose the best word. And that's, that's an enormous burden. <laughs> it's very hard. Now, um, I think that, well, it's very rare that I, um, that I get a sonnet crossing my desk as an editor. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and to that, to that end, um, formal verse at all, it's, it's pretty well, um, well, it's, it's not, it's, it's not gone, but it's, it's, I guess you could say it's going extinct or maybe has been going extinct for a long time. Um, it's even rarer that I get a good sonnet. Um, so I, I was going to ask, do you, do you think that we should be writing more sonnets or do you think that we should be working on like building up our own artistic uh, intellect to match like what the sonnet demands of a poet? Well, I think that Again, the form is not the first consideration. I think the form follows from, from what you're going to say and, and how you are able to say it. So I wouldn't start out saying, you know, programmatically we're going to do sonnets or we're going to do, you know, this this type of verse or, or you know, some some other form. I, I think the poet has to start with with the idea, the concept, and, and the concept finds its own form. So I wouldn't be too programmatic. What I would not do is I would not eliminate, you know, uh, I would not turn down sonnets because they're sonnets or some other form because it's not a popular form. Uh, I think people have to write, you know, you write a poem, it finds its own form. Uh, and some poets find their form in the sonnet, some in something more complicated, uh, more difficult, something, you know, some, some in couplets and some in free verse. Um, and I think you just have to be open to all of them. Um, but um, I, I think again, the, the the form is is the medium. It's not it's not the you know the message, as it were, and that it has to follow naturally. Um, I I do think there is, of course, there are certain dangers. Uh, on the one hand, too much formalism can get very artificial. So you know there are poets who yeah they write sonnets or they write very regular rhyming verse, but it's kind of uninteresting because they're sacrificing content to form. Um, and it's just too artificial. And then you have the other extreme of poetry, which is so free and easy that it's just not interesting to read. It's, it's like sloppy prose. So that's the other extreme. Uh, I, I, would, I would try to stick with the interplay between you know, the form and the function. Um, preserve some forms, but be open to all forms. But I think there's always some kind of form. Um, and um, it, it may just be something in, in the, the rhythm of, but that's still that's still a kind of form. Rhythm is form too, in a sense. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Um, do you use your poetry to explore your faith? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. Well, I think, there is there's a connection. I'm not sure that that is the connection, but I think that it naturally takes poetic form. Um, I have quite a few poems on, on, on you know what you would call religious themes or philosophical themes. Um, it's a way of working out problems. I mean, again, if you look at the sonnet, there's a kind of 
thesis, antithesis, synthesis sometimes. Um, you pose a problem, you may pose the uh, possible answer and then a kind of, or a kind of objection to it and then a resolution. I mean, these could be philosophical or religious theoretical problems. Uh, well, not theoretical, I mean, they're very real life problems, but this, certainly the sonnet provides a, a kind of form for, for posing a question, um, an objection, you know, and then maybe some kind of synthetic answer. So I think the sonnet lends itself very well to that kind of religious or philosophical contemplation and some kind of conclusion. Um, so, you know, absolutely. Um, there are other, um, you know, probably other forms of poetry which lend themselves to other types of, you know, religious contemplation, um, maybe more intuitive, but certainly I find the sonnet lends itself very well to that kind of thinking, yeah, and that kind of expression. Yeah. So I, I ask all my poets uh, this on the podcast, why should lay people care about poetry? What effect yeah. will it have on our daily lives? Well, I think, first of all, um, you know, there, there, when I was, when I, I should go back when I was in college, you know, I, I studied uh, with, with a professor named uh, Elroy Bundy and he had, he was kind of an unusual person. This was at Berkeley uh, of all places. And we studied uh, some of the criticism and poetry of Ivor Winters and, and Kenneth Fields and a few people in that, in that school, which is rather out of fashion now, but they, they felt that uh, poetry has to deal with reality. In fact, they came out with an anthology of poems which had almost no romantic poems in it because they felt, you know, expressing your feelings, that's not, that's not great poetry. I mean, there were a few exceptions, but basically they eliminated the 19th century and, and, and part of the 20th. They went back to the meta, metaphysical poets of the 17th, 16th and 17th century. Um, they looked at poets who were seeking truth. And so I, you know, I think that um, poetry is a way of seeking and contemplating, you know, the truth, uh, not just expressing your feelings, you know, the, the, and this is why the, these, these people, you know, avoided romantic poetry because, you know, who cares about your feelings? I mean, you know, I see a lot of poetry today, which is very expressive. You know, I feel this, I feel that, I'm sad. I'm, you know, who cares? Uh, it's only interesting if it's something universal. Um, and, and poetry ought to uh, express some kind of reality. This is what, you know, Winters and Fields and all these other people, uh, they, they had, a, in fact, an anthology, I think, called Quest for Reality. But this could be a metaphysical reality. Um, and I think that good religious poetry is, is realistic in the sense that it, it, it doesn't, doesn't deal with just dreams, you know, or feelings. It deals with, rea with spiritual realities, with moral and ethical realities. And, you know, love is a reality. If that's the highest Christian virtue, then it is a reality and it is one which poetry can express. Um, mm -hmm. But it's not, you know, just touchy-feely love, but, but something a little more substantial. So that I think, I think that certainly um, I don't know whether this answers your question, but certainly for for Christians, I think poetry is very much uh, a way of um, exploring spiritual realities, of affirming them, of reinforcing them. It's a kind of guide to life in many ways. Um, I think. Um, 
Gee, poetry is uh, it it I think makes you more um, contemplative. You know, it's a way of kind of making ha helping you to focus on spiritual realities. But again, not 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 in the sense of something just airy and insubstantial, but of something you know really concrete and and, and important. So. Um, yeah, truth, reality, love, these are all these are all the themes of, of good poetry. Right. I mean, there's even biblical precedent for that, isn't there, in the Psalms Absolutely. and in the wisdom yeah. and wisdom literature. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Um, so as a final note on your poetry career, you've also translated poetry. Um, yeah. and it was in Ukrainian, right? Yeah, it was yeah, I was translating Ukrainian poetry into yes, into, into okay. English. Right, right. Um, so are there many Ukrainian poets? out there? Um, there are many Ukrainian poets. Um, you know, how many really good ones there are, I don't know. The, the one that, that you mentioned, Natalka Bilotsirkiewicz, is a, you know, is a, a friend of ours. Um, and actually, I have to say that, you know, I, I started on this with her, you know, again, she and her husband here in the Washington, D.C. area on, on some sort of fellowship. And, and you know, I knew about her poetry. I had read some of it before. And she's a well-known poet of the actually the 19th, still in the Soviet period. She was a well-known poet, 70s and 80s, and you know, and later. Um, and we got to talking, and we were talking about translations. And she said, "Well, you know, maybe you'd like to try translating some of mine." And I, you know, so I just jumped for the opportunity because I thought that would be interesting. Uh, and um, so I did some of her poetry, and some of that is, is going to be published. Um, I also. Uh, Translate, have translated some of the um, Ukrainian poets of the 1920s. That was a generation of poets which, you know, almost all of them were executed in the 30s. I mean, they were, they're, they're called the executed uh, generation, um, the executed Renaissance, because there was this great flourishing of poetry in the 20s, and then almost all of them were destroyed in the 30s. There were about three really good poets who survived by writing very adulatory verse about Stalin. Um, they were still good poets and they still produced good stuff, but, but there were only a few who survived. In any case, I translated some of two of those poets, Maxim Rilsky and Mikola Zarov. Uh, Rilsky was the one who survived, Zarov was executed in 38. Those poems uh, were very, you know, it's difficult work, but it's extremely gratifying work. Um, you can't, you know, preserve the sound of the poetry, and unfortunately, that's a big part of it, especially, I don't know, it seems in. Slavic languages, the sound is very rich and you just can't render that in English. But you can try to throw in a rhyme here and there. You can try to replicate the rhythm or, or maybe pick an analogous rhyme scheme. But these, um, these poems, both of Natalka Bielotsarkiewicz and, and, and of Zara Rilski, who were neoclassical poets, it's very regular poetry. It's very formalistic. Uh, rhyme and rhythm, you know, regular meter. So it's difficult to translate, um, but if, you know, it's extremely gratifying to do that. And I spent a long time translating some of these poems. And, you know, as you know, I got some of that published. There's a, there's a lot more I'd like, there's some more that I would like to, you know, still trying to get published. And that, uh, you know, it's a very good exercise of your inventiveness and, and, and uh, your creativity. You're, as you know, you're basically writing a new poem. And you're writing it in a new language with different sonorities, you know, with a different flavor. You're trying to, to create something analogous to the original. Um, and you're, um, you're also have the challenge of 
cultural references. A lot of this, these poet, a lot of this Ukrainian poetry has all these cultural references, which you know the English language reader is just not going to get, and just you know is not likely to know. And you can't just have a poem with a lot of footnotes saying, "Oh, this means that, and this is that, and this refers to that." I mean, you can do some of that, but you know, it only goes so far. So you have to think of something analogous. And well, it, you know, it's a great creative challenge, a wonderful exercise for the mind. And I spent a long time and going in, in the case of Natalka Bielsen, he was going back and forth with her, discussing, you know, line by line, word after word. Sometimes, uh, you know, how do we translate this, and how do we find an English equivalent? What does this mean to you, and what does this mean to the American reader, American as opposed to, let's say, English? Or you know, um, very difficult and very gratifying and very creative work, and I just loved doing that. And that's actually what what brought me back to beginning to write some of my own poetry again. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, yeah. But, um, you know. Well, offhand, uh, can you recommend any other uh, Ukrainian poets? I mean, I think the, the, the most famous Ukrainian poet is Taras Shevchenko, who's a 19th century poet. Uh, he's kind of the national poet. And the thing about Shevchenko is that, uh, well, first of all, he's been translated quite, quite well by a whole range of, of people. Uh, Vera Rich, whom I actually met in England, Vera Rich uh, translated his poetry into the more or less the kind of Victorian English of his time, which I didn't like at first because it was well very Victorian, you know. But but it's actually a very smart thing to do because it that was the time in which he lived, and because he preserved a lot of his rhythm and rhyme. Uh, there's a more you know recent uh, translator, Peter Fedinsky, who's translated Shevchenko's most famous work, and Fedinsky uh, translates it into a more you know, I mean he's I know the guy, you know, he's a contemporary. American English idiom. Um, but this was a very Christian poet. I mean, I think that's the interesting thing about Shevchenko. He is known as the national poet. He pretty much sparked the national revival of Ukraine in the 19th century. He, um, he wrote about, you know, many things. Uh, he was born a serf. His friends had to buy him from his master. I mean, he had a terrible life. He didn't live long. He was, you know, imprisoned. He had all sorts of, you know, bad experiences. But he was a very deeply Christian poet, which means not only that he um, used Christian imagery, which you know, I mean, atheists can do that; anyone can do that. But he, you know, he he really thought as as an Orthodox Christian, and his, uh, of course, his themes were were really the, you know, the the hard life of the peasants, the oppression of the people. I mean, it sounds kind of trite today, but at that time, this was you know. He was very much a social, uh, a, uh, a social poet, but also a national poet of the Ukrainian people, and it's it's beautiful poem. He also wrote a lot of you know uh, paraphrases of the Psalms, for example. Uh, he had a poem about the neophytes. So he was a you know a Christian poet, also in the sense that he was himself a deeply religious man, an Orthodox Christian, um, and I think that he wasn't simply using Christian imagery. I mean, to him the uh, social justice and, and Christianity were all of a piece. Uh, you know, this was a time of serfdom. People were bought and sold like channels, like slavery in the US. Um, he died in 1861, the year that serfdom was abolished in, the, uh, in Russia. Mm -hmm. But I would recommend, yeah, reading Shevchenko, uh, absolutely. Now, of modern poets, um, you know, oddly enough, I can't think of a lot of um, Christian poets, and I think maybe because the Ukrainian literature has been kind of a, 
preoccupied with simply cultural survival, linguistic survival, survival of the people, survival of the culture. Um, but there have been some, uh, Ihor Kalinech, who's still alive, uh, he was a sort of Soviet dissident poet, Kalinech, K-A-L-Y-N-E-T-S. Um, certainly uh, a Christian poet in the sense of being a, a practice, a practicing Catholic actually, but uh, there is, you know, he, he has poetry with a lot of Christian imagery. And I think he was, you know, there's a Christian worldview here. Uh, a contemporary poet who is an acquaintance of mine, Vasil Makhno, who now lives in New York, um, I didn't think of him as a sort of Christian poet, but he came out with something called Jerusalem Poems, very nice book in, in, in two languages. You can get it, it was published a few years ago. And of course it's, uh, you know, he takes a trip to Jerusalem and, and he is a, you know, this is sort of the encounter of a Christian with, with Judaism and with, with the Holy Land. And there's some interesting poems there, uh, which, you know, uh, about Jerusalem in a sort of Judeo-Christian key. And I think that's kind of very interesting. I think it may be a very interesting, particularly for people in uh, those Christian traditions, which look to the Old Testament um, mm -hmm. very intensely. So Vasil Machno, M-A-K-H-N-O, contemporary poet, very well translated. This is a bilingual edition by a uh, a man named Popovich was actually, I think, a chemist, and <laughs> he's a very good translator. So yeah, there are there are a few like that, but not not as many as as one would hope, and maybe that's yet to come. Well, in closing, Andrew, um, what would you say are some of the difficulties of being a Christian in American academia and government today? Uh, well, I think there, yeah, I think there's more difficulty in academia than than in government. Actually, in government, I was very Pleased to find, uh, you know, uh, fellow believers and you know that, I, that among my co-workers, although they, they tended to be among the support staff <laughs> rather than the professional staff. But you know, maybe I was mistaken about that. I was support staff myself, so maybe that's why. Uh, but I think that uh, in government, I, I you know I saw no problems. Uh, um, you know, in fact, um, you know, surprising what what how many you know sort of people you will find in government that, that are pretty much on the same wavelength. Uh, um, now in, and, and, I was, and I was working in the Department of Justice, I was working in, you know, people sort of in the legal field. Um, I think that in academia, well, we know what, what the problems are. Very few academics are, are religiously inclined, shall we say. Um, but there, you know, there are, there are some very notable exceptions here and there. But, but yeah, you know, my experience, I mean, I didn't have any difficulty because of that, but I think that people maybe sometimes looked at askance at me, you know, they wanted to make sure I was not some kind of fanatic because this is, you know, people and in, intellectuals, when they, when they encounter a person who was religiously immediately, you know, fanatic or, you know, so some, or, or else some extremely uneducated, you know, redneck type of person. And, and unfortunately that stereotype, you know, still persists and then you kind of have to stake out your territory there and say, look, I'm the same person. You know? <laughs> mm -hmm. But um, you, one feels kind of lonely in the academic world. Yeah, because, you know, the, the, the cynics and the doubters and the, and the uh, unbelievers are, are certainly seem to be in the majority. I know, you know, although I knew some people, in the, you know, in the academic world who are, you know, very, uh, very uh, re religiously committed people, they, they usually didn't make brilliant careers, but, uh, <laughs> you know, um, they were there, and uh, but you know most people are kind of open-minded 
to it. Mm. So uh, I, you know, I, I didn't. I don't think I suffered discrimination. But I think there's a kind of natural selectivity. I mean, I think people tend to um, favor people who think like they do. And since the kind of secular humanist uh, mindset has come to prevail in the academic world, uh, there's a kind of uh, selection there of, you know, like-minded people. Um, and, you know, but for the same reason, I'm very pleased when I come, come across people who are really open to, to religious perspectives. Um, I wish there were, you know, more such people in the academic world. But, uh, you know, I think another problem is that, of course, a lot of the um, approaches we see in, in intellectual life, in the humanities in particular, are um, connected with ideologies, you know, like Marxism, for example, in whatever form, which are, of course, essentially anti-religious um, philosophies and it's kind of difficult to uh, make your way. I mean, I, I sometimes think, you know, I wanted to be a literary scholar at one point and I almost did a PhD in comparative literature. Uh, when I now look back and I see the direction that that field took uh, shortly after I would have had done my PhD, I think I would probably have, have been out of a job very quickly because um, there were some very crazy ideologies. Uh, you know, very uh, nihilistic kind of approaches, um, you know, ideologies which were basically Marxist or, or very similar to that. And uh, I just would not have felt comfortable uh, mm. with that kind of approach. Uh, or, or, you know, simply, simply because they, these were not approaches which I would have found interesting or, or fruitful, mm -hmm. uh, given my philosophical kind of uh, worldview, as it were. So, you know, that's, yeah, that, you know, that's, that's the problem that one gets. Uh, in the professional world, in, in the world of lawyers, you know, I didn't have any trouble at all. Uh, I mean, on that count, I think, you know, you, you will find some very, uh, very pious people among, among yeah. you know, practicing lawyers. It's, it's like any profession. But it seems like the, uh, the central problem then is in academia. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. What, what ways would you say we could rectify the difficulties there? Well, I think, yeah, that, that, that's a tough question. I mean, I think in a way, uh, some of those trends in the, acad in the academic world, and I'm, I'm not talking about the natural sciences, I'm not talking about uh, you know, other fields, I'm talking really about the humanities here, uh, particularly literature, um, and to some extent, uh, well, not history so much because historians are pretty down to earth people. And as down to earth people, historians recognize the role of religion in history. So, you know, you're not going to fool them. Although, you know, the more I, you know, unless you get some, some very ideological ones, I mean, you had, had Marxist historians in the West making great careers, but, uh, you know, they, yeah, they're not, they're not, they don't have a monopoly of history. Uh, and you, you do have a, a variety of views. In literary studies, you know, in, in the humanities, yeah, that's more of a problem. I'm not sure what one can do. I think to some extent, these trends are self-destructive and, and you, you can just sort of let them destroy themselves because they, they end up in a kind of absurdity. I mean, a lot of uh, literary scholarship uh, has become so divorced from reality that, uh, and, and so politicized 
that it ceases to be what it what it was meant to be in the first place. And suddenly the study of literature becomes the study of politics, you know, and it's not literature anymore. And I think it'll self-destruct. I mean, uh, I hope it will, but, uh, but, but I think it's, it's headed that way because, you know, it's simply so misconceived. Um, there, uh, there is a lot of politicization in, in large parts of academia. And again, I think that's going to be self-destructive. People will simply lose interest and ignore it. And in fact, I suspect that a lot of the really creative thinking in, in fields like, like poetry um, is going to be in, uh, outside the academic world, you know, people just working on their own. Uh, like a lot of echo chambers, uh, it's just going to cave in on itself. Um, and, you know, people will just ignore it, <laughs> you know, um, in the best of cases, you know. I, I think, but I think that's inevitable because I think anything that's really conceptually misconceived, philosophically uh, self-contradictory, like a lot of the, the ideologies you get now, the ideologies in, in the humanities, they're going to self-destruct. Um, right. There's no other way. And, you know, maybe there'll be some kind of rebirth of a more you know, sane and sober approach to, uh, to, to literature and to the arts. Oh, let's hope so. Yeah, I really hope so. Um, do you think that there is a role that the arts can play in changing uh, a nation's uh, attitude toward Christianity or is the role of the yeah. arts there kind of ex exaggerated? No, I think, uh, I think it's very important. Um, I do think that, you know, people of, of faith need to get into the arts. Um, and I think that that is a very natural kind of uh, vehicle for a lot of the thinking that they do, because it is a lot of it is intuitive. I mean, you've got, you know, sort of the theologians doing, you know, logical theology, and that's great, and that has its place, and it's important. But you have the poets doing a kind of intuitive um, exploration of faith. And I think that is going to reach a lot more people. Uh, there are only so many, you know, <laughs> I've had a lot of conversations with people of all sorts of um, belief systems, you know, Marxists and, and uh, you know, people, materialists and, and, you know, former Christians and whatnot. And I mean, all sorts of people, you know. Uh, Logical argumentation doesn't always cut it. Uh, it doesn't always cut it in, in the public forum, though I usually try to use that. But some people just kind of ignore that, I find. Uh, and I think you can reach a lot of people in a kind of intuitive way through the arts, um, through poetry. There's too little interest in poetry, of course, in our country, and that's, that's an unfortunate thing. Uh, I, you know, I love places like, you know, like France, which are so literary, you know, a lot of that literature may be kind of misconceived, but boy, you know, those people read and then, you know, you've got a bookstore in every corner and uh, at least it used to be, I don't know what it is now, but uh, there are cultures where, where literature is valued much more and I wish it were valued more here. But given that, I think you can reach a lot of people through poetry, for example. And I think that, um, there is an aspect of, of religion and spirituality which is best expressed through kind of supralogical means, through the kind of poetry that, that, you know, it sort of leaps above logic, it goes beyond logic. And I think there, there's an important role for that. Music does that too, uh, painting does that too. And, and I think incidentally that uh, the, the correspondences between uh, 
poetry, music, and, and painting are, are certainly very interesting, very worth exploring. And, and particularly in, in, in the sort of spiritual key. But I, I, I also think that um, there's a lot that, that certainly Christian poets and other writers can, can do, you know, and, and by getting into the mainstream. And this is another you know, thing I wanted to say, actually, it's very important that you create a kind of milieu as, as, does, you know, as does your journal um, to, uh, to bring these people together and, and, and kind of for mutual reinforcement and, um, and, and mutual kind of cross-fertilization of ideas. At the same time, it's important to get out into the mainstream also. You have to do both. Uh, it's not an either or proposition. And, uh, you know, there are some, there are some very, um, I mean, there have been some cases of some very good Christian poets um, attaining national fame. Um, you know, Dana Joy, I think is the one. Um, so you need, to, you need to do both. Um, mm -hmm. You need to have that mutual reinforcement and create that milieu with the cross-fertilization of ideas within the, the, the kind of Christian poetic milieu. And at the same time, you need to get out into that mainstream. And I think the difficulty there is that, of course, there's a kind of language which people of faith speak, which, which is a kind of closed uh, code system. And, and that's all very well, but you also have to be able to speak to the, to the broader society. And that, that's a difficult challenge. I mean, I really don't know what the answer there is. Uh, but I think that, that certainly um, poets of faith need to, to get out into that mainstream also, venture out there and you know, find, find an audience, find an echo. It, it, it can be done. It has been done in the past. Um, you know, and, and I think of, gee, even the case of someone like Boris Pasternak, you know, great, I mean, he's well known for Dr. Zhivago as a prose writer, but there he was in the 30s, uh, you know, unable to do anything but translate, you know, literature into Russian because, you know, this is Stalinism, why Stalinism? And yet, um, he writes these marvelous poems, uh, you know, very, very Christian poems, and eventually they get out, you know. And so in that kind of milieu, if he could, if he could survive as a poet, I think, you know, <laughs> certainly we can. Um, but I think that, that, yes, you need to do both. You need to have your milieu, and you also have to venture out and sort of fertilize that rather barren poetic world that, that we find, a cultural world that we find ourselves in today. And I think, uh, that can succeed, you know, that you can flower in the desert. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, um, you know, I think that uh, academia is certainly has had cultural effect, um, the secularization of it over the last hundred or so years. Um, yeah. But I think that we've seen a lot more rapid um, success in, in secularization of culture with yeah. movies, you know. Yes. Um, it seems that that's that's more the primary vehicle to me of all this. Um, so, I th yeah, I, th I think that um, the arts, and especially with film, they do have a profound effect on cultural thinking. And that's why we need to uh, reserve our seat at the table, so to speak. Um, yeah. And I think yeah, there's. I mean, uh, just to make make it clear, you know, I, I think it's important to have your milieu and, and some sort of uh, cross-fertilization of ideas among people, you know, of faith. And yet at the same time, you, you need to fertilize that culture around you without being corrupted by it or, you know, discouraged by it. You need yeah. to do both. But, but I think it's doable, yes. 
yeah, it's it's extremely hard. Um, it is extremely hard to walk the line of um, making art that is not uh, necessarily it doesn't it doesn't proselytize, uh, yeah. while you know remaining true to your convictions. Um, yeah, and the tricky thing is with language because you know people in the sort of Christian milieu you speak a, a kind of code coded language which they understand, but which outsiders, you know, don't always get, you know, if you just come out with that, first of all, people are going to look at you and say, uh Oh, more Christian stuff, forget it. You know, some editors will say that. I mean, I, I, I know. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and second of all, people just won't understand it. So, but on the other hand, if you want to speak a language, which is understandable by the average person today, you, you know, it's a pretty impoverished kind of language. And, if you start using all, all those rich allegories of, of, of the Christian tradition, they're, they're just not going to get it. So that's a real, that's a real challenge. That's a difficult, you know, to, to sort of speak in a language which the broader public, a de-Christianized, quick, quickly, you know, rapidly de-Christianizing public is going to understand, even though they don't get the, they don't get the references anymore. Uh, they may not understand the word. So you have to speak a language they can understand, but you have to speak a language which expresses you know, expresses well what you're trying to say. Very, very difficult challenge. Right. Um, a different Andrew, Andrew uh, Reichard, on the, one of the previous podcasts has said, uh, part of the task of being an artist is inherently oppositional to, to culture, um, which I, I, I think is pretty profound and accurate. Um, and, you know, speaking of, uh, you know, the cultural version to like Christian allegories, I think you're spot on um, because most of my my prose uh, that I wrote back in my undergrad, um, it was acknowledged as good writing by my by my teacher, my my creative writing teacher. But the form, the the form of the allegory, she just hated. You know, mm. she just hated um, uh, allegory and uh, parable and you know just oh, just yeah. all that. And it's like, well, that, that's very unfortunate. You know, because I mean, you're not only closing yourself off to, uh, to you know, um, Christian forms. I mean, you're closing yourself off to all the other allegories Absolutely. of world literature, you know, like Aesop's oh, yeah. fables and stuff. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, what advice would you give to young Christian artists and missionaries and activists who are trying to make a difference right now? Write as well as you can, read as well as you can, uh, read as much as you can. Um, have friends and, and you know, try, try to find people, you know, I, mean, I don't want to say like-minded because that implies some kind of conformity, but, you know, people who are on your wavelength, have, have a few, at least a few of those just for solidarity, but go out into the world and, you know, do not be afraid to... Uh, to confront that world, and you'll be surprised uh, what what echoes you'll find when you do that. Uh, don't get too hermetic. You know, you don't want to create a closed cult. This is a danger always. You know, to, to become some kind of cult. Uh, you know, you have to go out and, and encounter that world. But I think when you do that, you may be surprised how much of a of an echo and how much of a response you'll get. Because if, you know, if you're speaking the truth, I mean, someone's going to hear that sooner or later and, yeah. and recognize it for the truth. And, you know, don't be discouraged. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Great. Well, Andrew, why don't you uh, close us out by reading some of your poems? Okay. Uh, 
let's see, what do I have here? Oh, yes. Okay, here's one from Image um, called Curriculum Vitae. The lives of others have a point and aim. Each stage prepares them for the one to come. They know the rules and how to play the game. Their calculations yield a tidy sum. My opportunities were premature or late. My deepest love went undeclared. I hesitated when I could be sure. I should have been more cautious when I dared. And so our talents, dormant, pregnant, wait. Our wisdom deepens and accumulates until the day when finally we stare death in the face. Was all this heaven's share and not our own? For this alone makes sense. The heretofore is nothing to the hence. Okay, here's another one. This is one of the ones uh, from Solo, if that's okay. Uh, this is the one uh, Christmas. Those childhood Christmases weren't drawn from stencils. No family prayers or carols. We don't sing. But love in every message scrawled in pencil, on every card and present tied with string. They have long passed into eternity. There are no children, only you and me. No blithe accord of credulous minds and hearts, nor hope to be rejoined in heaven's parts. I'll fashion a nativity within, an ardent crash against the dark and cold, and faithless chasm swallowing kith and kin. A lonely enterprise for one so old. If no one seeks it, does the light still shine? Not fate, but man insists on being blind. That was excellent. Yeah, I, I really love the, uh, the line, I'll fashion a nativity within. I shared that with uh, my friend, um, and he was—he just—he uh, was like, "You got to publish that right now." So, Thank you. Uh, Thanks, your friend. Yeah. yeah. Well, Andrew, I really appreciate you coming on and sharing your story. Um, you've had very important things to say, and uh, we—you know—I um, know people value value what you say. So, thank you for sharing. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Well, thank you for listening. Bye. Bye.